Hey guys, I'm Richard Fitzgerald. This is Dubai Works, where we interview the business leaders making a difference in this great city. That business with scalability was very interesting to me. I like building something that has legacy. That week flew by, so many things going on. Dubai is so active as usual. I feel like a broken record saying this at the start of the show, but it is. Uh, this weekend, uh, we have media partnerships, Love in Abu Dhabi, a media partnership with Mon Monster Jam. I know that's popular with a lot of kids and it's taking place in Etihad Arena. We're also partners with Love in Dubai with Dubai Comedy Festival. If you like that sort of thing, it's running throughout the city for the next couple of weeks. Uh, next week, there's a lot of things happening in Dubai. There's Fast Company Green Gold Summit. There's uh, PodFest, a podcast festival. Uh, and there's also CabSat, an industry festival as well uh, for the media industry. Uh, we had the King Coronation last weekend in, from the UK that was broadcast. And that topic does come up about the, the car that the king drove in uh, before he was coronated on this week's special guest today. Uh, so enjoy the conversation. Welcome back to another episode of Dubai Works Business Podcast. With us today is Bruce Robertson. He's the MENA Managing Director, so Middle East and North Africa, for Jaguar Land Rover. They are a multinational automobile manufacturer, I'm sure you're well familiar, who produces luxury vehicles and sports utility vehicles as well. So we're going to talk about everything Jaguar Land Rover today, the automotive industry in Dubai and across the region, and what's in store for the future. Good morning, Bruce. Morning, Richard. Good to be here. Thanks for coming on. Uh, great. So uh, obviously a household name, a well-known company. Can you tell us a little bit about, what, how would you tell someone who hasn't heard of Jaguar Land Rover what, what the company is and what it does? Well, I think the history of the company is very important. You know, um, everyone knows what a Land Rover is. Uh, 1948, uh, you know, the vehicle was introduced uh, into the world and has been, has been synonymous with off-road driving and, and performance uh, over, uh, over, what, 75, 80 years. Jaguar is not dissimilar. Started out as Swallow Cars many, many years ago, um, in, in, in the 30s, I think it was, you know, delivered many performance vehicles, ultimate luxury vehicles. But more, more importantly than that, you know, we're a company that advances technologies, we're a company that is an engineering company, a, a manufacturing company, uh, all combined into one, and we look forward to the future as well. So uh, a dynamic environment in which we work, um, whether that is from an engineering perspective, from a driving perspective, or a customer ownership uh, perspective. So really exciting. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, such a broad way to talk about it. It was an unfair question, but I'm sure people would love to learn a little bit more about the history and then obviously what the company does today. But, uh, you know, let, let's just break it down a little bit. So both of the brands, the, the household names that you mentioned, uh, have different origin stories and then they sort of came together. Can you walk a little bit through just sort of the macro milestones as, as you were starting to do there and to how we got to this group that we are today? Yeah, sure. I mean, we, we take a step back. Let, let's look at Jaguar. It started out as a, as, as a swallow sidecars um, in, in the UK, in the, the, manufacturing of, uh, the manufacturing of vehicles. Many of our plants actually through, through uh, World, World, World War II were used to, to build Spitfires. You, you know, so we have a, a deep heritage in, in a lot of manufacturing in terms of aluminium. Um, and what's happened over the years is obviously the motor industry has evolved. 
and the vehicles have evolved, our, our ownership experience and our client base has changed. And we've grown as a, as a small, the small company in, um, in, the, in the United Kingdom to, to a global player now. That's on the Jaguar side of the business. Had a number of different owners, um, but in, I think, 2008, uh, we came together as one um, under Tata. On the Land Rover side of the business, uh, we go back to 1948, as I mentioned, um, you, you know, the advent of four-wheel drive, for want of a better word, vehicle used um, th throughout the 50s, 60s. And uh, first, uh, a lot of engineering first in terms of actually off-road driving, in terms of luxury going off-road. And the product development over the years has been from, you know, we, we've had this tremendous breadth of capability where a car could be used as a fire engine to now a luxury Range Rover that, that, that drives the queen or the king around. Mm. Um, so there has been that advent. We've had a number of different owners. I think in the 28 years I've been with the company, we've had four different owners. Um, we are currently owned Jaguar Land Rover by Tata, um, a massive Indian uh, organization, um, Indian-owned company, uh, and a fantastic company to be part of, a global organization with many hundreds of thousands, hundreds of, thousands of workers and hundreds of billions turnover. So a, a real, what's the word, a real coming together of two British brands uh, under different international ownership. And I think as the company has grown over the years, our breadth of appeal to customers has been massive as a result of our multicultural orientation to where we manufacture our cars, where they're engineered, and to whom we're appealing. Amazing. And what's the, you know, we mentioned at the top Middle East and North Africa, what's the presence in the region and also when did it start? Okay. Um, well, I, th I think the question, when do we start, is a more interesting one. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure if you were to speak to many members of, of, of the royal families that we have in, in, in the Middle East, many of them will, will, will tell you that the only vehicle they ever knew as a child and the only way they could get to different parts of the country was in a Land Rover. Um, and they were driven around town, potentially in a Jaguar. So, so the history, we have a long... Uh, history with with um, with the Middle East um, and with North Africa, a very proud one. Um, and I think the foundations on which the business has have been built have have been driven by you know what we were able to achieve in in the 70s and the 60s. You, you know businesses aren't built overnight. Um, I know the speed of building a business now is significantly greater. But when you're building a brand and a brand that is synonymous with what we do, it does take a long period of time. And you know, good, strong brands have reputations that are built over time. They're not built overnight. You know, you talk about reliability, you talk about engineering capability. Um, the, 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 this region has been key to that, and we'll talk a little bit about the investments we've made, how we test our vehicles out here. But to give you some idea, for us, this region uh, is, is a key part of our business. We stretch from Morocco in, in, in the west, so basically an eight and a half hour flight to, um, to the west. We go right up into Kazakhstan, Armenia, um, Uzbekistan, down to Pakistan. So a large area, a large geographical area, very different clientele, very different product offerings in each of the countries. Mm. The core business does sit within, with, within the GCC. So, and it's, it, the, this region is one entity that you, uh, so you're the managing director of that. And what does that role entail? Uh, but, but basically ensuring that we work very closely with our partners. Um, so yes, I look after the region. I have a very, very strong team, um, very capable team. And, you know, people for me at the end of the day are what drives success in a business. Um, so I, I always say my team is fantastic. They are. But more importantly, I think it's the partners we choose um, in, in each of the countries that we go into. 
Our partners generally are very uh, financially stable. Um, they are well-respected partners in the countries we operate in. Um, and I think that's key to the success. But more importantly is I view our relationships with our partners as partnerships. This isn't an us-versus-them approach because us-versus-them only works one way. When we've got a pure business partnership, there is benefit to both teams. And we go through the good together and we go through the bad together. And I don't think we can hide away from the fact some of the trials and tribulations that we've, held, that we've faced over the last 20, 30, 40 years as a company, you know, without the support of our partners, life would have been very, very different. Mm. Um, principles as well as partners. So the relationship that we've built up and that we continue to build is most probably the most important thing. What do I do on a day-to-day -day basis? I lead a team that determines what products we bring into the region, how they're serviced, how we go to market, mm. um, you, you know, the digitization, the, the, the evolution of the motor industry for Jaguar Land Rover in, in, in this particular region. Um, I think as we go forward, that will change. Things are happening much faster. Our partners with whom we work are also adapting very quickly. And they learn from their other principles as well. You know, so whilst I wouldn't say we copy, um, I would say that there's evolution um, and revolution to a degree in the motor industry that is happening very fast and people are adapting. And if we don't adapt, we will die. And the typical structure is that there's a global parent company in the automotive industry and it has different types of partners. You mentioned sometimes they can be national partners, distributors, but they're they're usually not manufacturing partners. Correct. Um, I think it's fair to say that uh, the principle at the end of the day, so in other words, and the parent company, Jaguar Land Rover, we will have a number of different companies, whether that's in Dubai, whether that's in the US, whether that's in, in um, China, uh, South Africa, wherever, we will have a number of companies. Working with those companies are our dealers in many, in many parts of the world, but we obviously can't put up a company in every single country. And that's where we work with importers. Um, so let's take Qatar, for example. Um, the likes of Alpha Dunn Premier Motors uh, look after the Jaguar Land Rover brand in that market, working very, very closely with us. Um, we work with them in terms of the investment that they, that they need to make, the facilities that are required, the number of facilities. But ultimately, they are responsible for the success of the brand in that market. We provide product. We advise them in terms of pricing, we provide service, we provide support, um, marketing, whatever the case is, but they do take the car to the customer and their relationship is key. In terms of manufacturing, uh, we have in the past had a number of uh, joint ventures around the world, um, whether that's uh, a joint venture with a partner, um, you know, where we've gone into, let's say, I use a hypothetical example in Thailand, where we may have used a company to help us build the vehicles uh, under license. It was called semi-knockdown uh, semi or SKD or CKD, which is complete knockdown. Um, but generally, we will own our manufacturing facilities, we will operate them, and we operate them in, in line with what is required within that country, but often with a lot of government, um, I wouldn't say support, but more uh, a very good relationship with government. A recent example for us is the manufacturer of Defender, uh, where we have a plant in Nitra, uh, that is in Slovakia, purpose-built plant, a mm. uh, very close working relationship with the government because you have to. Um, you know, we're a big employer. We will employ most probably three to 4,000 people at a site like that. Mm. And you can imagine the impact that has on, on, on the economy. The same in Brazil, the same in India. 
Um, I was very fortunate to have been in China um, as things took off and I was there for four years. So from 2010 to 2014, where we built a state-of-the-art plant. You know, that plant now supplies a large proportion of our vehicles that go into China. So we create value, um, but more importantly, we become an integral part of the whole economy. Um, If you just think of a manufacturer, um, what's required to go into a motor vehicle and the support that is, uh, the parts that are required, you get to a position where, you know, it's not just about us building cars, it's about the manufacturers of glass, it's about people building wheels, about carburetors, about um, fuel tanks, and those have to come from subsidiary industries and, you know, aluminium coming from Saudi Arabia, from the Emirates, Mm. being shipped around the world. So when a manufacturer goes to market with a product, it's a very, very complex process, but it has an impact in terms of an economic benefit to to many countries that I think at times is underestimated. Yeah. You you know, if you look at at Germany, I mean, let's be honest, there's not a lot Germany has to offer outside of the the motor industry as such. They built a large proportion of that economy. Uh, uh, What I mean by that is... It's Why a pivotal role to the industry and the GDP overall. Ex- yeah. Exactly, you know, and, and not dissimilar in, in other parts of the world. And whether that's Jaguar Land Rover or whether that's other motor manufacturers, you know, we play an integral part to, mm. um, to, to many organizations. Yeah, there's often, you know, we often hear, of, uh, especially in the US, big debates of where the manufacturing hubs would be and where plants are opened. And, you know, if Tesla are opening in Berlin, like there's old, old debates and the incentives to attract because of, as you mentioned, uh, the jobs that, that those companies can create. But does it make your role harder or easier that you don't have to look after manufacturing at the moment in the region? Uh, it definitely makes it easier. You know, manufacturing is extremely complex. Um, when, when, you, when you're bringing um, parts in, into a plant, the logistics, the operations, etc. I'll mean, give you an example. A number of years ago, into our Solihull plant, we were bringing in roughly a thousand containers a day. Where's that? Uh, Solihull is in England. Okay. So, um, so. where our main, one of our main manufacturing facilities are. So you can imagine parts coming in by ship, coming in by road from Europe, from all over the world, and having to make that. It's a very, very complex operation, and hence the level of investment and infrastructure has to be has to be very, very strong. Uh, to ensure that you can build cars. Mm. Because if you don't have a pink seat that needs to go into a car, the line stops. And uh, how does interesting... So, but in that sense, you, you have to trust, and I'm sure you will speak highly of the manufacturers that, that are owned by Jaguar Land Rover, but you have to trust that they will provide you the vehicle uh, that's obviously of high quality and high spec, but also then localized specs. And without sort of not necessarily talking about the industry overall, but what does Jaguar Land Rover do differently for this region? Well, I think, first of all, um, one, one of the key things we do is we engineer our products for this region. Um, we, have a, we have five test centers globally, um, engineering test centers. One of them is in Dubai. Okay. So we will engineer our vehicles based on the performance out here and the requirements out here. And, and you purpose-built that in, where is it? So it's in Silicon Oasis. It's a 10,000-square-meter facility that we have out there. And what we do is we will bring out what we call uh, engineering mules. We will test them out here. Because when you put a car in 70 degrees in the sand in the desert, it's very different to how it reacts to minus 30 in snow in Colorado. You, you know, parts react differently. Um, and it's in that environment that we have to engineer our cars. Because the last thing we want 
is a vehicle that is not fit and engineered for purpose. In what sense, you know, I'm a bit naive on this, but how would the part react differently to weather? Well, I mean, you, you, you just think about, you know, heat. Um, you get overheating, it's like a simple television or a simple hairdryer, okay. whatever the case is. You can imagine if that overheats, um, the engine could melt, you know, you might blow a hose because the hose hasn't been tested to the right temperature, to the right pressure. You'll have different water pressures that go through the engine at different temperatures. So we have to make sure the cars are fit for purpose. Um, and the sand that we have here in the desert is different to the sand that is in Arizona. Mm. It's very different to the snow in Russia, um, where, wherever you might be. And the car is a multi-purpose vehicle. So it has to perform to standards. And that's what we do here. We engineer the vehicles so that they are fit for purpose here. Our colleagues will do the same in the States. They'll do the same in Sweden. Um, you, you know. And at the end of the day, we make decisions based on what is fit for the product, what is fit for purpose, and what the customer wants. Um, uh, yeah, interesting. Because you know, often when the customer is looking at specs and the region, they look at the different specs that's available on the mm -hmm. model and the year in the Middle East, but they don't consider as such that it could be fundamentally a different product that's already uh, built for purpose for the, with the climate and everything in mind. Yeah, well, I'll give you an example of that. You know, uh, in the UK, why would you have cooled seats? You know, whereas in the Middle East, you get into your car, and on our product, you have the option of cooling your seats. Hmm. Um, the same as in the UK or in, in, in Sweden, you might want to preheat your cabin so in other words, you, before you're about to leave home, five minutes before, ten minutes before, you turn the car on through an uh, electronic remote, car comes on and it preheats the cabin to 25 degrees. The same can be said for the Middle East. Why do you want to get into a car that's 50 degrees Celsius in terms of heat or 60, when actually if you could preheat it, yeah, or pre-cool it, you don't mm. want to preheat it, you pre-cool it to 23, 24 degrees, you get into your car, it's a much better ownership experience. Mm. So it's making sure that the specification is fit for the market. You know, the road conditions, African road conditions are very different to Middle East, very different to the UK, very different to the US. Different tar, different road surfaces, etc. So your tire usage, the rims that you put on the vehicles are all very, very different. Mm. Fundamentally, the cars are still the same. The cars will still perform, but you know we engineer very specifically for this market and the markets that that, that we go into globally. And your structure allows for that in terms of the feedback that you get from the market here. It's receptive globally, and I, I'll give you I'll give you a real example. You know, um, 25 years ago, we listened to what people said here. Now we act on what they said, hmm. and we have very we have research groups. We come out here three, four, five years in advance of new product coming. We ask the customers what they want. And whether it's a different type of leather, whether it is a different styling of the vehicle, etc., cetera, um, we will listen and we will take that feedback back and we will build models in the UK that satisfy the demand for what, what our customers want here. And I think more importantly, you know, we're listening to customers around the world. What we are starting to see though, is the globalization of customers and customer choice and taste. And that is because the world has opened up. There's a lot more exposure, um, you, you know, so people will e expect something of a brand in, in London. They would expect the same outcome in Dubai, the same outcome in Tokyo, New York, wherever. Um, and we are seeing, I wouldn't call it a homogenous um, type view, but more a consensed view of an expectation of what a car can deliver. 
And that ownership experience might be slightly different in each country, but the nuances are there. Mm. You, you know, I want to step into that car. I want to feel a sense of luxury. I like the leather feel, you know, but it'll be a different leather. It might be Napa leather here. It might be, you know, a synthetic uh, in, in the U.S., but the customer experience, which is very important, needs to be the same. Yeah. And, you know, if it, it, it is, and we have talked about it that, you know, you can customize it, but actually they do want a reliable global product, don't they? Like a car does the same thing and everywhere, really. Um, but talking about localization as well, you know, sales and marketing is so important, especially when you have uh, uh, partners in, in each country. And, you know, my experience with automotive organizations in this region is mainly from a sales and marketing mm -hmm. touch point, whereas... Uh, most of the employees that are working for the parent global groups serve those functions. And wh why do you think that is? And, uh, and what impact can you have from a marketing point of view? Well, e you know, even the Jaguar Land Rover brands are synonymous. They have such a strong name. And the sub-brands, Discovery, and, uh, you know, the other brands that you have, uh, then, you know, where can sales and marketing play a role and why are there so many people in those vocations in the region? I, th I think a number of things, you, you, you know, many people in the marketing sphere will say global brands, you think global, act local. I think we passed that. You, you know, this is about ownership experience. Um, you asked me very specifically about sales and marketing. How do we drive things? Um, so when we look at our customer requirements, we look at what they do, the interests they have and the focus they have. At the same time, we have a global brand that we need to look after. We need to make it relevant to the people in the market. And that is the function of what my team would do in the region. We will feed back into the global sausage machine, if I could call it that. Mm. Um, they will identify what we require out here. And if it is something specific, then we will orientate our marketing campaigns to that. Um, you know, whether it's a customer ownership experience, whether it's a look and feel on a car. So in other words... For example, the Middle East doesn't like green, blue, and, and yellow cars, but they would rather go silver, white, and black. You, you know, our mix and the way we determine what our customers want will effectively shape how we, how we sell the vehicles out here. Okay. So they might not want black interiors in the Middle East because it gets too hot. Um, they might go with a lighter interior. So, f you know, marketing is beyond just advertising. Marketing is about product, about pricing, it's about promotion, it's about the distribution. You, you know, we can go on. I mean, the classic, you know, marketing, four-piece Philip Kotler and all those good things. Yeah. Um, but, but it is a far bigger picture than that. Uh, to your point on sales, um, obviously price positioning in a marketplace is very, very important. Mm. I think Jaguar Land Rover, we, we always aim to be, uh, we've always been a premium motor manufacturer and we won't hide away from that. The build of the vehicles, the quality of the vehicles, the materials that go into the vehicles, we are premium. But what we aim to do is ensure that the ownership experience that the customer has through the purchase of the vehicle is perceived as value. Mm. Um, now, yes, you can have strategic sales campaigns where you may wish to sell a number of X or you have stock and you need to move it. It's no different mm. um, in, in, in the motor industry. The amounts are just a bit different. Mm. Um, the long and the short of it is we adapt for local conditions. And the local conditions in Qatar may be very different to the local conditions in Saudi, different to the UAE. So despite the GCC being one economic environment, if you want to call it that, the tastes could, can vary quite significantly. Mm. And the nature of the product, you know, Morocco, 
They don't take a lot of Range Rover because there's not a lot of wealth in the product, but they take a lot of other products. Mm -hmm. You know, the GCC maybe will take a lot more Range Rover or Jaguar or, or whatever. Um, so it's about adapting your product mix, um, firstly, into, into the market and making sure that the pricing and the promotion is relevant. Yeah. Back to the point I made earlier um, about key partners, the distribution is absolutely critical. Yeah. And that ownership experience. Your relationship with Dubai is which, with which group? Uh, Altaya Motors. And when did that start? Oh, they've been with us since um, as long as I've been with the company in 1990, uh, 1989, I think they started. Um, wow. So they're, they're a very strong partner of ours. And they've done very well with us over the years, but they've been very, very supportive. Um, great, great team to work with uh, and a shout out to them. And, you know, this is not an advertising uh, podcast, but I will say this is in terms of investment, in terms of the professionalism of, of their approach um, to going to market, um, we have a very, very strong partner and a world-renowned partner and a well-respected partner in that space. Mm. I would say the one thing I've noticed about the Middle East um, and having worked in China, having worked in the UK, in Africa, in Europe for the company, the one thing we learn here is we learn very quickly. We adapt very quickly. And actually, when we adapt, we take a step ahead, you know, because there is, there are, there is the ability of a young populace a populace that is willing to learn and a populace that has the financial wherewithal to drive that change. And when you get that all coming together, you only have a recipe for success. Mm. And I think that's symptomatic of the whole Dubai setup, the UAE and some of the surrounding countries. It shows maturity in business to be able to have two organizations to have a partnership for over 30 years. It's mm. a lot of credit to both sides. Well, I mean, we'll go a bit further than that. Our partner in, uh, our partner in Oman um, is the oldest partner that we have globally. Our partner in Lebanon is the second oldest. Um, okay. we, we talk, we're talking over 70 years here. Mm. You, you know? And in the motor industry, that is a long, long time. Um, but we have long tenure with most of our partners here, and we have good relationships with them. And it's the maturity of their businesses. Look, we don't always agree. We're not, we're not always the best of friends. But you know something, in a partnership, a, su a successful partnership, in any business, conflict is a good thing, mm. provided it drives a positive result. Mm. And we believe we get positive results. Yeah. And talk about, you know, the history of the brand, as you said at the start, and, you know, many people watched the King Coronation at the weekend. And before he entered the gold carriage, he was brought up to... Uh, brought up to Buckingham Palace in one of your, your, your fine cars. But talk about, I know we're talking about marketing. I'm going to, you can correct me if I'm wrong yeah. on my perception, perceptions, and these are just mine. But, you know, um, the royal family here, we often see His Highness Sheikh Mohammed in a, in a Mercedes G-Wagon. We, we hear of history of, you know, a lot of people choosing Nissan patrols to drive in the desert. In Saudi Arabia, the kings in the past would have brought Fords in, mm. Uh, when I entered this region, people would have talked a lot about German cars versus Asian cars. Th there seems to be some perceptions here that aren't necessarily everywhere in the world. How, does, how do you agree or disagree with those statements? I, 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 I disagree to a degree, or to a large degree. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Too many degrees. Um, Good. <laughs> if, if we talk about Jaguar and Land Rover, we are very well represented in the manner in which we want to be represented within the influence, influences within the region, the royal families and the respect that they have for us, but more importantly, the respect we have for them. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's key. Let me start by saying there, there are no bad cars being produced. You, you know, the, the segments in which you compete 
the products are good for those segments. Our competitors make great cars. I'm not going to hide away from that. They make very capable vehicles. They, are, they have very good dealer networks, you know. So for, for, for me to sit here and sort of say, I need a car to go into the royal household, that's not the way we do business, you, you, you know. We do business based on the fact that we create demand for our product, we satisfy our customers, and if there is a need from that customer for a vehicle of our nature, they will use that vehicle. And it's their, their choice at the end of the day. Um, we are very well represented in the Middle East with the royal families, if that's the question, and we thank them for their support. Yeah. Um, oh, I was really talking about like perception, not just at that level, but uh, you know, your brand is so strong globally and definitely, you know, uh, the different ways that sort of marketing has evolved with influencers and celebrities, so your discovery and some of those brands that you have, mm -hmm. have has really exploded. And I'm sure sales has, uh, you know, gone up as well in the last sort of decade or so. And, um, you know, from a price point and from a positioning point of view, you know, we, in other sectors, in other industries, like in retail and fashion, we see, you know, the values of those holding companies going up and up and up. Does it, is it um, wise to be positioned to a more affluent customer even when there is macroeconomic challenges going on? Okay, so I think we down to the, you know, um, turnover is vanity, profit is sanity debate. Um, and there's the old, uh, you know, the, the, the core cliche of what are we in business for? Are we in business to be the biggest or are we in business to effectively drive a shareholder return. And I think as Jaguar Land Rover, we've been quite clear about that in terms of our stated aims and objectives. Mm. We have moved away from being a volume manufacturer. We make no, we make no bones about that. You, you know, we are competing in a much smaller segment of the market where you know, profit is key. And we have um, some financial returns that we have to hit. Our, our, key shareholders, you know, they wouldn't be investing in us if they didn't believe we could do that. So I think to answer your question, this isn't about a mass market scattergun approach. This is about targeting where we compete and where our products compete the best, the segments in which we compete, but more importantly, it's about the level of return. Return for ourselves and for our dealer partners who make huge investments. And at the end of the day, you know, we come back to the customer. The customer has to be comfortable parting with hard-earned money and the experience they have to have needs to be seen to be value for money. You know, um, I could think of nothing worse than spending a fortune on a vehicle and walking away from thinking, I shouldn't have spent that money. You know, so it's the fulfillment of the promise, the desire. Mm. Um, yes, marketing does change. The focus does change. If we look at the way we, we work with the media now, you know, gone are the days of multi-million pound press launches, fly the guys business class, put them up in the best hotels, etc., etc. Now we and, and only motoring journalists. Now we have lifestyle influencers, we work a lot with them, um, and that's changing, and it's changing very, very fast. Mm. Re recently, um, we had the global launch, so the global launch of the Defender 130 in the UAE, in Dubai. Now for us as a manufacturer to do that is a statement to, to this country and mm. to the region, that Jaguar Land Rover are entrusting the launch of one of their most important products to this country to effectively showcase to the world. 
traditionally, we would have bought out motoring journalists, we would have put them up in a nice hotel, go for a nice drive in the desert, thanks for coming. It's about a lifestyle experience now. So we had influencers, we had people who I would not normally have interacted with coming out here, young people, 22, 23 years of age, but who've got a million followers, mm. two million followers. Mm. And their lifestyle approach is very, very different. And that's what we're aiming at. So there's a significant shift in terms of ways to market, ways to marketing, and effectively getting your message out there. Fascinating, and it seems to be working. Or, you know, can you give a top line? How, how is performance since in the region? You know, is the automotive industry doing well in Dubai at the moment, and what's the outlook like for the year ahead? I think there are three things that always drive economic indicators. Purchase of houses, purchase of watches, and the purchase of motor vehicles, <laughs> <laughs> particularly in this region. I'm, I'm being a bit facetious. Yeah. Um, in this region, we're very oil dependent. Um, you know, the economies are very uh, hydrocarbon driven, um, and that is the basis of it. With the prices where they are at the moment, the economic environment is very, very positive. Where there's positivity, there will be for the motor industry. The last 18 months, two years in the industry are fantastic. I will tell you from a Jaguar Land Rover position that our volumes are up basically twofold on where we were two years ago. Wow. And I will go so far as to say this, and many of your colleagues have challenged me on this, is how much further can we go? But more importantly is why have you such long waiting lists? Why is that the case? Why don't you bring more cars? Because actually we are not a mass market you know, manufacturer. We create demand for our product. But at the end of the day, you know, we are seeing tremendous growth in our business here. Uh, I won't give you the exact percentages because that's uh, proprietary information. But this is one of the fastest growing regions for us as a company globally wow. at, at the moment. And um, versus when I arrived here nine years ago, we're a very, very different organization, as are our partners who have grown significantly. Demand is good. Uh, I, I just want to go back on the how you launched that car. What's your view on uh, the presence of... Uh, motor shows now uh, sure. and, and what their impact that they have, the importance that they have in the industry? I think, I think well, we've seen over the last five or six years the decline of motor shows. You know, in, in, in my opinion, motor shows are, are things of the past. Okay. There are certain countries where motor shows are still key. China is one. Um, there are a few selling shows around the world, particularly in Europe, even though they, they've reduced in, in, in size and complexity. I think the big issue on a motor show was it was always glitz and glamour. Um, it was always about demonstrating and showing new cars, showing new models, and it was a relatively – it was an expensive way of getting the message across. But when you bring the world's media all into one space, it's very easy to get a message across. And we didn't have the forms of communication that we've now got. Now – I take one picture. That picture's gone around the world faster than an aeroplane can go. Mm. You, you know? So I think the advent of technology, digitization, which is a key strategic pillar of ours, um, has changed things significantly. It's made us more cost efficient, um, which drives a greater shareholder return. Uh, it allows us to focus our time and effort on driving specifics maybe more often four different products in different markets as opposed to having the Geneva Motor Show, mm. the Detroit Motor Show. You know, so the allocation and the orientation of resource is far better spent now and the efficiency and the cost is significantly changed. I won't say reduced, I'll say changed because the nature and the channel of the, um, the information going to market, there's always a cost associated with it and the differing channels now, whether it's TikTok, YouTube, whatever the case is, you know, we have to create content as you are 
that's relevant to people who watch and and you know listen to these things but try and engage with our product but do you think that you know there were obviously other benefits of congregating and meeting people that maybe if the cost wasn't as much moving forward that you would still have some sort of need to have that type of event well i, th- I, th- I think we, we step out of just the motor show mm. you know we just step into normal business life okay you know you look at teams and the advent or zoom whatever the advent that that had over COVID. Um, I know for a fact that whilst we had these we had these discussions, they were never as intimate mm. over the air as they are one on one in a cup of coffee. Yeah. Um, and my business relationships that I have with my partners, I do not do on Teams. I will go smell the coffee. Okay. You, you know, shake the hand, see them eye to eye, and discuss things that we want to discuss because a business relationship is not just about what can you give me, what can I give you. It's about understanding who you are as a person understanding your business, understanding the economic environment in which we're competing, the products that are being offered, you pick up on things that wouldn't be said over the air. You know, little comments, little nuances, body language. So for me, to answer your question on a far greater global scale, the motor shows allowed for that, but it was a very insular environment. You know, we're not an insular environment anymore. Who would have thought that we'd employ 3,000 software engineers yeah, you know, wow. 10 years ago? Um, and what is our highest level employment? Most probably software engineers at the moment. Mm. Who would have thought that motor manufacturers are investing in tech companies to drive their agenda? So, you, you know, those sorts of things have changed significantly. Motor shows a thing of the past. Wow, good, good statements. Like the assertiveness of it. Yeah, you mentioned the tech. There's so many things we could talk about. Uh, obviously, it's a wide industry, and I think off air you said it's you know nine or ten different businesses and industries all together and the, the you know the transition into tech and you know the emerging trends of electric vehicles uh, there's been some numbers in the press recently about the investment that Jaguar Land Rover as a group are making mm-hmm. into electric vehicles can you talk a bit about that yeah so, so I think well well I know and everyone knows the focus on electric vehicles globally um, whether you like him or not driven by Tesla and I wouldn't say you know they lead but what Tesla did for the industry was he sparked it up. They sparked it up. Um, terrible pun. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but at the end of the day, um, they, the whole electrification, um, the whole um, you know, carbon neutral environment had to happen. And the motor industry needed to react. It's a massive industry. It's a giant industry. We are behemoths. We go slowly sometimes. We've had to change our view on that. Jaguar Land Rover's perspective on that is by 2025, Jaguar will be an all-electric brand. By 2030, every single one of our Land Rover products will be available in battery electric. By 2039, we will be carbon, uh, carbon neutral as a company. Wow, they're so, kind so of aggressive num- targets. Very aggressive. Wow. And that's only 15 years from now. Uh, as it is, 100% of our electricity is from renewable energy sources. You, you, you know, so electrification is just one aspect of a carbon neutral environment. You think about the processes behind manufacturing vehicle or transportation, that's what we also need to be focusing in. I think the challenge everyone faces when we talk about electrification is infrastructure. Um, You know, people always say electric, 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 but actually what does it take to charge an electric vehicle and where does that infrastructure come from and who makes the investment in it? And I think governments that will make the investment in that infrastructure are those governments that are serious about driving 
uh, zero emissions, about driving a reduction in carbon and sticking to agreements that are made at COP26, 27, 28, whatever number we're on. Uh, you, you, you know. So JLR is very aggressive. Um, we are making significant investments. We're investing five billion, uh, 15 billion pounds over the next five years in new product. And a key part of that is electrification. Mm. I mean, to take the Jaguar brand, a car that won Le Mans, you know, came first, second, and third, a vehicle that is renowned for performance, yeah. and to turn it from a, uh, what we call an ICE, an internal combustion engine, into an electric vehicle, that is a serious commitment. True. To take a Range Rover and turn that into a battery electric vehicle with the weight, the off-road capability, you, you know, we are serious about our, about our engagement and about what our customers want. Amazing. And, you know, we didn't talk much about Saudi Arabia. You know, how key a market is that for you? And in line with the last sort of point around uh, electric vehicles, we see other automotive makers doing partnerships around factories over there. Mm -hmm. Do you see, uh, a, is, is Saudi Arabia a key market for growth? And then also, do you see any uh, alignment in the future that you could be producing electric vehicles in the region? <laughs> I, I won't. I won't speculate. Um, I, I prefer. I'll be quite frank. We don't talk about future product. Um, but but what I will say is, that Saudi Arabia is a key growth market for us. Um, we see tremendous potential there. Uh, the speed at which things happens there, and the financial wherewithal that the country has, ensures that it's a key growth area for us. And whether that's in product or whether that's in infrastructure that allows us to support our product, that will be key. You, you know, you look at Neom, you look what's happening up there. You know, a few years ago, we did an, uh, uh, a study on uh, charges, and it wasn't long ago, I think less than two years ago, the number of charges that are available. I won't mention the countries, but they are big neighboring countries, and one of them is ours. In one of the countries, there were 360 charges. 180 of them didn't work. Okay. In another country, there were six charges in one city. That was all. Okay. Electric charges. So, you know... It's about the infrastructure, about the support that government requires and the commitment that they make. And it is big money, you know. At the same time, there is a, a level of, um, what's the word, responsibility on the manufacturers and battery manufacturers to work together to ensure that the ownership experience of having a battery-driven vehicle is the same, if not better, than an elect uh, than than an uh, internal combustion engine vehicle, mm. and whether that's in charging times, whether that's in range, and whether that's in performance, it's up to us to make sure that happens. Do I do we have relationships with bat battery manufacturers? Yes, we do. Um, we have openly announced that um, our plant in Wolverhampton in the UK um, will become our primary propulsion centre. So in other words, that's where we will develop our future product in terms of electric vehicles. Mm. So batteries being you know, developed, batteries working with partners um, as we go forward. And being part of Tata allows us that opportunity. Mm. You know, a tremendous industrial uh, giant that has the capability to deliver what we need. Uh, okay, so it might not necessarily be around electric vehicles. And you know, the, the government, especially in the UAE, uh, I was at a a press event recently with Uber mm -hmm. and you know to achieve their targets globally they feel that they will easily do them here because of the uh, the support that they're getting at a, at a government level so but I, I wonder uh, you know you've worked in many regions around the world yeah. uh, you know in in China which is obviously a, a, a you know a, a huge economy and sort of a superpower now but 
uh, and we have Saudi Arabia potentially joining BRIC and BRICS now are, are but typically we would wonder, you know, of the BRIC emerging markets, which of them emerge? You know, did Brazil and did Russia emerge and then India has and China has? Do you think that this region will grow beyond the emerging market tag? I think a lot will depend on the success and the wherewithal with which the, the key countries drive change and social acceptance globally. Um, I don't think we could shy away from the fact that there are negative perceptions of some of the countries in the region. Um, let's not beat around the bush on that. Do I think there's the financial wherewithal to do it and become key global players? Absolutely. I mean, we are talking Qatar, we are talking Saudi, we're talking the UAE. These are the wealthiest countries in the world, or some of the wealthiest countries in the world. Do they form an integral part of the global economic environment? Very definitely. I mean, why South Africa sits in the BRICS environment, for me, is beyond, and as a South African, you, you know, I don't understand it. Okay. Um, so, you know, I look at the, the, the success of Saudi, I look at the success of the UAE, Qatar, you know, even Kuwait to a degree. And there's a very high standard of living for, for, for the Kuwaiti people. Um, you, you look at that and the financial wherewithal within the region must make us uh, the, the right place for future investment. However, you need, to be offer, you need to be able to offer something. People won't invest for no reason. You know, and whether that's financial, uh, you know, incentives, whether that's, you know, you turn Dubai into financial hub or Saudi's Neom Electric Development, whatever the case is, there needs to be reason for investment as okay. opposed to nothing there. Uh, and I think that's going to be key to the success of the future. Okay, interesting. And the wider region, you know, sort of North Africa and even, you know, in Pakistan mm -hmm. and places like that, you know, do you think that they can, irrespective of your business, just economic outlook, you know, would, would you be optimistic? Yeah, I am. I mean, you look at Morocco. You know, Morocco has and is developing very quickly. Their growth over the last couple of years has been significantly ahead of most, most African countries, most European countries, in terms of an economic environment. Hmm. I mean, people will say, um, you know, you can read growth figures how you want them, but if I use specific examples in that country. The football team. <laughs> <laughs> well, that drives any economy, doesn't it? I think, I think if you look at the specifics within Morocco, their solar... You, you know, the ability that they have, if they were to build solar farms, could supply Europe in terms of the energy requirements that they need. Wow. You know, they could be selling, they could be selling energy into Europe. Hmm. The car industry, the motor industry, they already do significant amounts of glass. They do, they, they manufacture in, 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 in Morocco. They take parts from Morocco into the cars, into our cars, into our competitors' cars. So it is growing. You know, but they need the investment to grow. Mm. And if a country doesn't have the wherewithal to do it and the government to support it, it ain't going to happen. Mm. Look at Egypt, you know, the most populous, one of the most populous countries on the African continent. There is opportunity there. It's just making sure we harness that potential and take it. Yeah, fascinating. We're almost out of time, but I want to go back to something you mentioned, which is a huge number, and I probably should have known it, but 10,000 engineers, that's double what tech companies have. That's double what Snapchat have. It's probably double what Twitter has nowadays. We heard this morning that uh, Elon Musk is now stepping back from CEO of Twitter, but he's still going to be CTO. And, and for you, Bruce, in a role, uh, 
you know, that with a long career in the automotive industry, now to be essentially running a, a, what is a tech company in many aspects, um, what does that entail? Are you a, are you a CTO now? No, that's, it's a very good question. Um, and, and, you know, I will always wear my heart on my sleeve. I'm having to learn. I'm having to ch- change my skill set. And the one thing I will say about that is, you know, 30,000 people work at Jaguar Land Rover. One of our stated aims is to ensure that our people are skilled for the future so that we don't make them irrelevant and redundant. Mm. You, you know, and I'm one of those people. You've asked me to put a PowerPoint presentation, I can do it. Ask me to get into the intricacies of programming, there's no hope. But what I can do is I can learn and I can understand and I can improve my skill set that will make me relevant to the people I'm working with. You know, it's about respecting how things are changing. Gone are the days of eight to five working in the office. You know, we are changing so fast. Work patterns are changing, people are changing. So to answer your question, does it frighten me for the future? Yes, but it excites me. And it's those people who take the opportunity to better themselves, so whether they're old dinosaurs who've been in the motor industry for 30 years, you know, selling cars and now having to adapt and become IT literate and, and orientated, that's what we need to be doing. Mm. You know, and it's not just about the motor industry. And it's about listening to younger people, understanding the trends. I look at my kids, you know, one finishing university and the other one halfway through. Dad, you need to adapt. You know, and that's the only way business will succeed and the only way people and companies like ours will, will be around in the future. Well, it sounds like you have the right approach. Thanks for your time this morning, Bruce. Pleasure listening to you. We could have went on for longer. Good. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, sometimes when we speak to a global company, when we have someone uh, senior in the region, uh, it's hard to fit everything in because there's so much you can talk about. And so I hope you enjoyed some of that. We tried to pack a lot into the 45 minutes, but maybe we'll have Bruce on again in the future to talk about more, some fascinating stats. I always wanted to own a, a Jaguar, and now it seems like I'm de- it's definitely going to be an electric vehicle, as there'll be 100% electric owned uh, vehicles by 2025. Fascinating statistic. Uh, thank you, everyone who listens on the podcast. You can also catch Smashy as a streaming service on smashy.tv on the web, on iOS and Android, but also on smart TV devices. We recently announced partnerships with many different partners from Daily Hunt to TPay to Visha app. Uh, so the places where you can uh, catch Smashy in an ambient way is are more and more accessible uh, than they have been in the past and will continue to be in the future. Uh, I'd like to thank our producers, as always, Ali Khalil, uh, who's been putting uh, together this episode today, and Shiri Al-Kindi, who organizes the guests and the distribution and everything that goes on behind the scenes. Thank you to them. And of course, the Smashy and Love in Dubai uh, journalism and editorial and social media teams who push this out on different platforms. We'll be back next week uh, with another episode, 11 o'clock on Friday. It'll be live, and then you'll be able to listen to it on Friday afternoon. Enjoy the weekend.